Good morning. My name is Marcus, and um, it's my privilege to, to, to bring this message to you this morning. And it's not my message, but it's the Lord's message. I pray that it's a message for all of us. And um, I'm not the regular pastor here. Lauren asked me to speak on this topic this morning. And uh, it's such a privilege, I have to say, that when I explore this and I can't say that I've ever studied the Bible this deeply as I have when you have the responsibility of standing up here and teaching it, but what a privilege it is to get all this, so much goodness that comes out of it, and you learn so much for myself, and I see how everything's connected. Um, I'm feeling a little bit echoey, Lauren. I don't know if that's just on my end or on, on your end. So um, we're continuing this exploration of Mark chapter 8, and... We want to explore who is the Messiah. A little bit of background, if you can't remember what we learned last week or if you're new this week. Um, Jesus and the disciples have been traveling through the Decapolis, which is on the boundary of Galilee. And he's been performing all kinds of miracles. And it seems to be coming to a crescendo. These crowds are getting bigger. The miracles are getting more dramatic. And yet, in some sense it seems like Jesus is a little frustrated because he says to them, have you hardened hearts? Do you, not, do you not have ears that hear? Do you not have eyes that see? In other words, like, come on, don't you people get it? Then last week we heard that Lauren was preaching about the blind man that was healed. And in a strange fashion, it seemed like it took Jesus two cracks at it, right? He sort of healed them the first time and then he could see people, they looked like trees walking around, kind of blurry. And then he went at it again, and then he could see clearly. And it wasn't, the point wasn't that Jesus was having a bad day. It was that he was, he was trying to teach about a progressive healing. And um, that theme, I mentioned that because it continues today. So the idea is that understanding who Jesus is and knowing him as Lord can be a gradual process. So the passage for today, I just want to read it here. So it's in Mark chapter 8. Uh, verse 27. So this is right after this healing. And so Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others Maybe one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his, at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if, any would win, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for you? a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. 
Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. Let's pray. Lord, your word's amazing, and uh, it was written a long time ago, but you wrote it for our ears to hear today and for our eyes to see today, Lord. And I just pray that as we reflect on this passage, that you would open the eyes of our heart and help us to understand your desire for our life and for holy living and to pursue your ways more, more deeply and more clearly, Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so they're up in uh, this Caesarea Philippi area in northern Galilee, and speculation that Jesus might have gone into this area that's more Gentile um, to, uh, you know, as we've heard previously, to teach the, the disciples that the gospel isn't just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. But maybe he also took them there because he wanted to reveal more about his, his kingdom, right? He's been mentioning these little hints of his kingdom and that he's got this kingdom coming. And, of course, talking about a kingdom close to Jerusalem, which is where the uh, seat of power was, and the Pharisees were, might have disrupted the, uh, the powers that be, so to speak. So maybe he wanted some, some time away from there. But nonetheless, he was there. And uh, so he's walking along to these villages in Caesarea Philippi. And so he's having a stroll with the disciples. And he says, hey, guys. What's the word on the street? You know, who do people say that I am? And of course, Jesus wasn't asking this because he didn't know, because Jesus knows everything. He knows the answer to the question before he asks it. But like any good teacher, right, sometimes you ask a question and you get your students to kind of ponder the answer, and in doing so, they reveal the answer to themselves. So, hey guys, what are, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? And what are the responses? Well, um, Disciples say, well, you know, some say maybe you're Elijah. We heard somebody talking about maybe you're John the Baptist come back from the dead. Other people think maybe you're uh, another great prophet. And in some ways, so they, they didn't get the answer right, right? This wasn't the disciples' answer. This was the disciples saying, this is what the crowds are saying. In some ways, that's no different than if, you know, we went down to the mall or to the park and asked people there and said, hey, you know, you guys have heard of Jesus. Who's, who's Jesus? And people might say, well, I don't know. I mean, he was a great man in history. He taught lots of great lessons, and he, he you know, had some good sayings like do unto others or something or other. And, and wasn't he that guy that tried to overthrow the Romans? And some, he was kind of a, maybe a rebellious lunatic or something. Or, you know, they, so they're circling around the answer, but they're not getting to the answer. And the crowds in those days kind of had a similar sense. They knew that something about Jesus was supernatural. He was healing people. He was drawing crowds. He was a great speaker. He was challenging the Pharisees, but they weren't quite coming to the right answer. So why would that be? I mean, I, I, I'm trying to imagine, you know, putting myself in, in that place back then. Um, Lauren spoke last week of Jesus' miraculous birth, the angels proclaiming his birth. But that was 30 years ago, right? Jesus didn't start his ministry for 30 years. He probably lived in relative obscurity, probably making sawdust with his father, you know, making wooden benches or whatever, right? And then one day Jesus bursts onto the scene. There's John in the desert. He's baptizing people. Jesus shows up. 
And John says, there's the guy I was talking about, everybody. This is the Lamb of God. He baptizes him. A dove descends. The Spirit descends like a dove. The heavens open up. God's voice says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, right? Suddenly, here's Jesus. Well, where did he come from? Who is this guy, right? As we go through Mark, and, uh, you know, I just did a quick skimming of Mark here. Even as Jesus is, is, is he's, he's healing um, demon-possessed uh, men, the, even the demons are pro- proclaiming, um, you know, this is the Holy One, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Holy One of God. Um, Jesus speaks of himself as the Son of Man and the Lord of the Sabbath. Again, there's another healing. Uh, the Pharisees are so amazed by this, they said, oh, maybe he's doing this, maybe he's possessed by the devil. He's doing this by the power of Beelzebub. Yeah, that's, that's who he is, right? Jesus later, he's on, the, he's on a boat in the Sea of Galilee. The disciples fear for their lives. And Jesus speaks and the storm calls, calms down. And the disciples are like, who is this guy? He just changed the weather, right? So they're all trying to figure out who he is because he just sort of came out of nowhere. Again, there's another demon-possessed man. We heard about this recently in the area of the Gerasenes. When Jesus heals him, he declares him Jesus, the son of the most high God. Even his own family, at one point, are going, who is this guy? How did he get all this wisdom? Um, he's teaching in the synagogue in chapter 6, and uh, the others around there are going, who's this guy teaching? Because that's his sister over there, and that's his brother. Like, he's just a regular guy. How does he teach with such authority? Where did he come from? Right? So, even though there was an expectation of the Messiah, people weren't putting together that this is the Messiah, despite the fact that Jesus was saying, I'm the Messiah. Um, Jesus repeats miracle after miracle, and even by chapter 7, the people are still astonished. They're just, they're getting proof after proof that he's the Messiah, but they're not connecting the dots. So why did they say Elijah? You know, there was, uh, Elijah was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire, and there was a prediction um, that he would come back. And I just skipped ahead of myself, but I'm going to get to that. There, in Micah, there's a prediction that, that uh, Elijah would come back. Similarly, John the Baptist, he had just been executed by Herod. And when they started hearing all these miracles and works of Jesus, Herod started this speculation. I think he was having nightmares that John the Baptist, whom he had executed by beheading, had somehow come back to life and was now working this, this ministry. So there was speculation about who Jesus was, but people weren't really figuring it out. Now, there was a prophecy about the Messiah, right? There was ancient prophecies. In fact, the prophets had been silent for 400 years. Going back, if you look at your Bible, you've got Matthew, which starts the New Testament, and then just before that, at the end of the Old Testament, is Micah, the last of the prophets that, that wrote, right? And for us, we just flip a page. But the reality is there's 400 years that went by where the prophets were silent. And the Israelites had had no further prophecies about the coming Messiah. So I don't know about you, but after 400 years, I forget a lot of things, right? That's a lot of time to go by. And maybe they were forgetting that, you know, there's this Messiah coming. But some people remembered. The ancient prophecies had told of of a Messiah. And a Messiah is actually the Hebrew word for anointed one. 
And in the ancient tradition, they would go around and they would anoint people, mostly, but sometimes also inanimate objects with oil. And sometimes that oil was fragrant. It was a special oil. Um, they would anoint people as kings. They would anoint people as priests. And they would anoint people as prophets. It was kind of a public declaration that you are someone special. And often they would pour the oil on their forehead and often kind of smear it. And actually, Messiah or anointed means the smeared one, which is interesting. The word Christ is the exact same word. It's just in, in uh, Greek. So the Greek word is Christos, which is the same word as the Hebrew Messiah. Now we know. Some people think Christ is just Jesus' last name or something, right? But, I mean, we laugh, right? But you, again, if you went down to the mall, you'd probably get that answer from a lot of people, right? What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Oh, I don't know. Isn't that his last name? No. So anyways, there was, there was a prophecy of someone coming who was not just like all these other people in the history of Israel, someone that was anointed. There was other people anointed all the time. Remember um, when Samuel came, the prophet, he anointed King Saul, right? And then later he would anoint the young man, David, who would later become the king, right? So it wasn't the first time that anybody was anointed, but there was the anointed one. Um, for example, if you turn to Isaiah 42, verse 1, It says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit on him. I will bring justice to the nations. In Isaiah 61, verse 1, later it says, The spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now we read that scripture twice actually, because if you flip over to Luke, if you flip over to Luke chapter 4 verse 18, this is exactly the same scripture that Jesus reads when he goes into the synagogue. He gets the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he reads this, Isaiah 61 publicly, the spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me, and so forth. And then he puts the scroll away, and what does he say? Let me just flip it over there so I say it accurately. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it, this is uh, verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's saying, This is about me. In Micah, and this is what I was referencing to before, Micah 5, verse 2, there's another prophecy. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one for me who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And so there's all these prophecies foreshadowing to someone coming who will be a great one, who will be the anointed one, not just another anointed one, but a special one. But they had somehow missed that. The crowds, that is, right? So one of the reasons the crowds probably missed that expectation is because they were thinking the anointed one 
they have their own imaginations of what that could be, right? Well, their grandparents and great-grandparents probably told them the story of the mighty King David and then his son Solomon and the great, the great time of peace and prosperity in Israel when everything was going so well and how they led them to the worship of the Lord. And then, of course, they were destroyed and taken off to Babylon by the, you know, as captives and the, and the kingdom was divided. And so they're thinking back to this great time of Israel and they're thinking, this Messiah, this anointed one, he's going to come back and he's going to restore the kingdom and we're going to have a temple again and a great army and a time of peace and it's going to be good. Like, we're going to, you know, we're going to dominate again. Remember, these guys are being um, uh, militarily occupied by the Romans. They're crushing them. They're, they're extorting taxes from them. This is not a good time to be in Israel at the time. And so they're looking forward to this great time of revival and, and freedom. And their expectation of a Messiah was someone who would come with a mighty robe and a big horse and an army and someone proud, someone who would give big military speeches and say, let's go, guys, we're going to, you know, let's, you know, let's take control. They weren't expecting someone like Jesus who was meek and humble and poor and, uh, I forget the exact scripture here, but you know, apparently he wasn't much to look at, despite what many of our pictures, pictures show, him, show him to be, right? Um, he was a turn-the-other-cheek kind, of kind of a king. Wasn't, wasn't really what people were expecting to be the Messiah. So they figured, well, this guy's a nice teacher, but he's probably not the Messiah, They were expecting possibly that Elijah would come back. And here's that passage. If you turn to Malachi 4, verse 5, which is almost one of the very last verses in the Old Testament. It says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. It had just described the dreadful day of the Lord. And then it said, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Right? So there's an expectation that, well, maybe Elijah's coming back. Maybe one of these prophets is coming back. But they weren't connecting that this was the Messiah. So the crowds really didn't have a good answer. Right? So now that Jesus has created this discussion amongst the disciples, and he goes to the second question of the test. Second question is, well, who do you say that I am? Right? We just figured out what the crowd is saying. But who are you guys say that I am? And I can imagine, again, I'm not a, I'm not a teacher, but if you've ever taught a class of students, right? The... Disciples might have gone like, oh, I got to check my sandals here, right? And, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, nobody wants to make eye contact with the teacher, right? But we know Peter, because Peter's always the, he opens his mouth before he, uh, before he thinks. And he's like, I got it, I got it, I go first, yeah. You are the Messiah, the Christ. And uh, actually, if you go to, to uh, the Gospel of Mark, which is a parallel account. Um, Gospel of Mark, verses 16. 
Matthew. Yeah, we're in Mark. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, verse 23. Nope, we're... Um, yeah, verse 16, Matthew 16, verse 16. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? So he gets extra marks for the full answer. I'm going to take a little bit of liberty here. And, you know, we're hearing about Peter because Peter's the one who opened his mouth. And again, this is pure, this is just my imagination. So forgive me for that. But I imagine that the disciples probably sat around the campfire previous to this. Jesus is off praying by himself as he would often do. Or maybe a couple of the disciples were sent into town to buy food. And so they were on their own. And they must have talked to each other and said, boy, he's the Messiah, right? Like he said he's the Messiah. Like what do you, what do you think? What do you, like when is this whole Messiah thing going to, because this is a kingdom, right? Like he's a king. This is, right? What do you? think he's the Messiah. Well, for sure he's the Messiah. Well, when is this all going to start to happen? So I'm sure Peter was speaking for the other disciples when he said, you're the Messiah, the Christ. So he gets full marks for knowing Jesus' divinity and his kingship, but his vision still blurred. He's not seeing the full picture. Just like the blind man, he's not seeing clearly. He's not seeing the full, the full picture. Because they knew about the kingdom Jesus has talked about his kingdom. And if you recount, as we've heard here many times, so many times Jesus is going, guys, don't you get it? This is different. But they're still seeing Jesus for who they want him to be, not for who Jesus actually is. Right? They're thinking, they're imagining this is some kind of a kingdom, military kingdom, a mighty kingdom. This is going to be great. So Jesus says to him, blessed are you, and this is, again, uh, pardon me, we're going to go over to Matthew again briefly. It says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Right? So Peter, Peter gets it. And I just want to highlight this part, that for us to understand who God really is, God has to do work in our lives, right? We can study and we can read and we can philosophize and we can sit around with, your, with our friends and debate intellectually who Jesus is. But for us to come to real understanding and a deep working level understanding where Jesus works in our hearts, it has to be revealed to us by the Spirit. And I think you can probably imagine or maybe you know some people. I know there's people on the internet, whatever, People that are smart, that are highly educated, they got their PhD, they've read all the philosophers, they've read the Bible, they've read all the ancient Hindu manuscripts and all this. They know all this stuff. And they can debate, but they still don't see who Jesus is. So, you know, when we pray for those people, that's what we have to do is to pray for them, right? Like debate and argument and facts and YouTube videos, it's not going to do it, right? The Lord has to open the eyes of their heart. So, this is the turning point now in Jesus' ministry. And actually, uh, Bible scholars kind of draw a dividing line in this part of Mark where previous to this, Jesus' ministry is mostly to large crowds and he's talking about his identity. And then after this, he starts talking more about, here's the plan, how, 
here's here's what we're going to do now. So let me go back to Mark after all that jumping around. Verse 31, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. So can you imagine? So the disciples are thinking, there's going to be this great kingdom here. <laughs> like, we're going to, any time now, like, have you guys seen the crowds? Like, we did this feeding of the 5,000. Then there's this other feeding of the 4,000. And again, some Bible scholars, they figure, you know, this mentioned like 4,000 men were fed, but they figured that like adding the women and children, this could have been like 20, 24,000 people. We're going to keep building bigger crowds. We're building a political movement here. We're going to, this is a kingdom here. And the disciples are thinking, we're part of this, like, we get to be part of this kingdom because, you know, like Judas is going to be the minister of finance and Peter's going to be like the director of public relations and the sons of Zebedee are going to be like the, the ministry of defense. Like they're probably imagining all sorts of great things here, right? And so Jesus just pops their bubble. No, that's not, that's not what we're going to do. Jesus says, the son of man, that's me. I have to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. I have to suffer many things. I'm going to be killed and after three days rise again. And they probably didn't even hear that last part, the whole thing about rising again after three days. They're just thinking, what do you, what do you, this isn't, this isn't what we talked about or what we thought about. This isn't the kingdom we were expecting. And of course, Peter, again, Peter being the, the spokesman, the loudmouth, the first one to jump into action, he takes Peter, and I forget what the, the, the Greek word here was in the translation, but it sort of speaks to him actually taking him and like, can we come over here? Can we just, with all due respect, can we just talk about this master, Lord, King, Messiah, who created the heavens and the earth? But I need to explain this to you. This is how, like, you must have misspoken because this whole thing is going to, like you said, you're going to, I thought you said you're divine and now you're going to be killed? How, this doesn't, I'm not connecting the dots. This doesn't make sense. You walked on water and now you're going to let them crucify you? How, how does this, right? Again, Peter had his own vision of who the Messiah would be. Jesus is revealing to him, no, this, I'm a different, I'm, I'm, I'm not who you guys were imagining. Everything that Jesus was talking about was revealing his humanity, suffering and death. Peter's thinking of Christ as divine, glorious. The only way to reconcile those two would be by faith, right? How can you, how else can you, how, how else can you connect the dots that, Someone who is divine, all-powerful, who created the universe, would allow himself to suffer and be put to death and be rejected. Furthermore, Peter, I don't know how much of a Bible scholar was, but if you read Deuteronomy 21, verse 22, it says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, right? How could this be the Messiah who's allowing himself to be hung on a tree on a cross? He's cursed. How can this be? 
course, Peter doesn't understand this because his vision, his vision hasn't been fully healed. He can see that Christ is the Messiah, but he doesn't understand who the Messiah is. He must have been thinking, what kind of a miserable Messiah? Like, he's going to let himself be killed, rejected by the Pharisees? If he's truly from God, shouldn't he be making an alliance here with the religious leaders? This does not make sense. So, of course, what does Peter do? Um, Again, Matthew 16, verse 22, Peter jumps into action because he's an action kind of guy. He acts before he thinks, and he says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. We're going to protect you. We're not going to let this happen. Look at us. we got 12 disciples around here. We're going to make sure we're not going to let that other plan happen to you. We're going to make the plan happen that we think the plan should be that should happen to you. Right? Peter's thinking, it's not about you. It's about us because we want to we wanna do this thing. <laughs> Peter's thinking he wants his kind of kingdom, not the Messiah's kind of kingdom. The other thing that Peter was doing, unknowingly, he was acting out of good in- intentions, But in saying this, he tempted Jesus. We know Jesus is fully God, but we also know that he's fully human, right? We know that hours before Jesus' death, what did he cry out to the Father? He's like, Father, man, if there's any other way to do this, he said, take this cup from me. It's like, Father God, if if you've come up with any last-minute options so I don't have to get crucified, Now's the time, right? Jesus being fully man, do you think he ever thought about the options, the fork in the road? He thought, you know what? I could actually do this. The temptation was there. I could actually, do, I could actually be a real king. I mean, I've got the lineage to prove it. I've got the speaking ability. I could, you know, I've got these, these, these loyal guys that are following me. What if I actually established an earthly kingdom? I, I could. Actually, maybe I couldn't let them crucify me. I could just call down an army from heaven and they would whisk me away and keep me safe. In fact, isn't that what the devil did to him when he, you know, when Jesus was in the, in the desert for 40 days? Satan took him up on this high spot and said to Jesus, look at all this. Look at all these kingdoms. Isn't this great? If you bow down and worship me, Jesus, bow down and worship me as, as Satan, I'm going to give you all of this. He's tempting, right? Peter's, Peter's, Peter's the kind of friend, and I'm sure we've encountered this ourselves. You have a friend who's got good intentions, and you're talking about something, and your friend goes, well, you know, like the other guys are doing it. Like everybody's, everybody's doing that. Like I'm sure if you do it, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Or, you know, if you make this compromise, I'm, I know it's probably not the right thing to do this right now, but if you make this compromise and make this choice, just think of all the other, just think, Jesus, if you established an earthly kingdom here, a real King David type of kingdom, imagine like imagine the man, how many people you could reach, right? These sort of, we're making compromises. Peter's, Peter's doing this out of good intentions, but he's being a tool of, of Satan. He's tempting Jesus. And what does Jesus do? I think there's another lesson here for us. Jesus doesn't go, huh, 
Peter, you know, yeah, let me think about that. That's, that's actually interesting, you know. Let's go talk about this. What does Jesus do? Immediately, he rebukes him, right? This reminds me of Joseph when he was uh, uh, um, attempted to be seduced by Potiphar's wife, right? He just dropped his coat and ran. He's like, I'm out of here. He didn't, he didn't stay around. He didn't try to, you know, figure something out or whatever. So Jesus, right then, he's, he rebukes Peter strongly. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And again, right, so this, this speaks to, to the way that we look at things. We look at things from humans. We have human ways of, human intellect and human ways of reasoning and trying to understand the world. And we need to understand that God's ways are not our ways. God has a different plan. So, what are our expectations of Jesus? Right? Here's the disciples. We're talking about the disciples making their own, making Jesus into the Jesus that they want, into the kind of Messiah that they want. But, you know, what about us? Right? Because we, we always got to bring the story back to us. And I think sometimes for some, maybe some new believer or someone who's not a believer, you try to make you try to make your own messiah kind of like kind of like you're you're shopping for toothpaste right like what can it do for me bright white teeth fresh fresh breath oh look at this one over here oh this one i get you know cures gingivitis and restores my gum disease or whatever right and so people go what can the messiah do for me well i like a kind of messiah that is kind to people um, I like sort of a karma messiah that if I do nice things for people, then nice things will happen to me. I like a messiah who uh, just speaks of love. Everything is about love. No consequences, just love. And so people are looking for a religion, and people don't necessarily have a problem with Jesus, but they have a problem with making Jesus Lord. Right, so they have they don't have a problem with Jesus because they take the nice things that Jesus said, and they take some of the nice things that Buddha said, and they take some of the nice things that maybe Hinduism teaches, and maybe there's a guy on YouTube that teaches nice things, and so they put all these things together, and that's their Messiah, and some people are just looking for that kind of perfect Messiah that offers all the positives, but no cross to take up. Maybe for some of us, maybe we've been believers for many years. And, you know, we've been coming to church. We've trusted Jesus. But it's, it's easy to forget who Jesus should be for us in our lives. It's kind of like you put Jesus, you, you wrap him up and you put him in the trunk of your car beside the emergency roadside kit, right? And then you grab the steering wheel, you roll down the window and you turn on radio and you go for a drive. And then when you run into trouble... You know, you get a flat or you run out of gas, you don't know which way to go, then you pull the Jesus out of the trunk of your car and, Lord, can you help me get this job? Lord, can you heal my cousin who's sick? Lord, can you do this thing for me? Right? And we sort of use Jesus like a vending machine and then when we're all good, we put him back and we sort of forget him a little bit and we carry on on the road of our life. And really, what 
we need to do is put Jesus in the driver's seat. And I followed this analogy. I was coming up with this analogy. I thought, I'm going to put Jesus in the driver's seat, and then I'm going to put myself in the passenger's seat. And I thought, well, no, that's no good, because I can still dial with the air conditioning knobs and the radio, like my wife does when I'm driving. <laughs> Sure, no, nobody else here does that, right? And I thought, no, I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna go in the back seat. I'll let Jesus drive the car, and I'll be in the back seat. And I thought, no, I can still be a back seat driver. I can still go. No, you're going too fast. No, go, go right. Don't go left, right? Maybe I should be. Maybe I should be in the trunk of the car, right? Maybe we should let Jesus take the steering wheel and have full control, and He decides where we go, how fast we go, what we do, when we stop, when we start. That's easier said than done, right? Jesus says, if anyone would come, this is um, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the angels, with the holy angels. What's the cross that Jesus is asking us to bear? You know, we live in a pretty comfortable society. You know, I tell my kids this, and they probably get tired of hearing it, right? But... I think if you stacked all the people in the world onto a pyramid, we'd be somewhere near the top. And the comfort of our lifestyle, our material goods, the freedom of our country, and, and our religious liberty. There's, you know, we read about books of missionaries to faraway places that deal with a lot of difficulty, financially, persecution, you know, you name it. What do we do to bear Jesus' cross? You know, maybe for some it's being a homeschool parent and making that decision and being ex- exhausted at the end of the day and you're thinking, man, I, why am I doing this, right? You're doing it for your kids. You know, maybe it's someone who's, who's adopted or fostered some kids and it's a lot of work. You're not doing it for your own good. You bear that cross. You know, maybe it's someone who just, you go to the office, you go to work, you go to the mill, you go wherever you go. And there's that water cooler conversation where a bunch of the bunch of the guys are chuckling and they're kind of making fun of those Jesus believers, right? Do we just look at the floor and shuffle and or do we stand up and say, Well, actually I'm I'm one of those people, you know? I'm one of those guys. What about when someone comes to our house, you know, you had uh, Jehovah Witnesses come to your house, right? And they hand out their tracts, and you go, Thank you, I'll take that. I'm really busy, I gotta go, right? Or do we take the time, do we say, you know what, I'm kind of busy, but you know what, come on in. Let's sit down and let's, let me sacrifice 20 minutes of my time so I can share with that other person the gospel. You know, what about, you know, Danielle often talks about the shopping cart people, right? It's easy to give somebody five bucks and say, have a nice day. What about sacrificing a little bit of our time and our dignity to be seen talking with one of these lowliest of the lows and saying, hey man, can I take you down there? You look like you need a new pair of shoes. Can I buy a pair of shoes? Can I tell you about Jesus? Right? Giving something over. We, we get so drawn up in our own lives and we like to do, let other people do all the, 
the dirty work, but what are we doing to take up our cross? You know, Jesus created the universe. He created all of us. And then he comes down to earth. Not in modern times where we've got heated homes and electric vehicles and iPhones and stuff. He came back then, was born in a dirty stable. The Lord of the universe, right, laid in prickly straw, walked the earth with a bunch of dusty, smelly, not-so-smart disciples that he had to disciple, right? He gave all that up. Then at the end, he gets to the point where he gets rejected by most of the people around him. He has to walk up that hill of Golgotha, dragging that cross after he's been beaten and bloodied. And he says, you take up your cross. And for some, God forbid, hopefully not for many, but for some, that has meant physically taken up a cross, physical, physical death. For us, sometimes it's an inconvenience. But he's asking us to, to, to bear that cross with him. I want to conclude with uh, Matthew 11, verse 28. It says, Jesus says to them, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So as we go home this, you know, today and, and this week, let's all remember, you know, what, what, can, what can we do to take up that cross? However great or how small that can be, I just I want to leave that challenge with all of us. Okay? Um, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your message. Thank you for the work that you've done, the completed work in Jesus that you you suffered. Just the fate of being human for 30 years must have been indignity enough for you to suffer. And then you died for our sins. Not because you had to, but because you wanted to. You made that choice to suffer for us, Lord, and you took up your cross for us. Lord, it's easy for us to get caught up in our busy lives and, and, and just day-to-day running around and, and forget everything that you've done for us. And you're just asking for us, sometimes a little bit, sometimes a lot. Lord, help us to remember that you are the Lord of our lives. And if you're not, we should make you the Lord of our lives. We should put you in the driver's seat and have full control and for us to take a back seat, Lord, or maybe even to sit in the trunk. Lord, we can't do these things on our own power. We can't do these things on our own willpower. But only through the power of your Spirit in our lives, Lord. And I pray that you renew us day by day, that we would grow closer to you on a daily basis, even in little incremental steps, Lord, that you would open our eyes so that we could see more clearly who you are, Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen.